yeah, yeah. Replaceable <laughs> producer. <laughs> That's a good one. F- <laughs> 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 Welcome to Cloud Realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities that can be unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman. I'm Shao Kazal. And I'm Rob Kernahan. And on today's episode, we are going to talk about data democratization. We're going to talk about how you access data, how you connect data sources, and then make that available to everybody through natural language interfaces. We also have a bit of a chat about kind of the underlying complexities of that and how new technologies are going to help get us past some of the crimes of the past. But before we go there, I was in the office the other day and and I could see Rob sitting at his desk, pounding away on his keyboard. Uh, And I said, Rob, what are you up to? Uh, And he goes, well, I'm 9,000 words into this blog about this particular little bit of arcane piece of architecture that he was talking about, and he just couldn't get his head around it. And I was like, Rob, what's confusing you this week? Uh, very good, Dave. Um, m- most of my architecture is now arcane. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> I also thought I, I was kind on the 9,000 word count, though, because yeah, no, usually be, longer, be, right? Be closer to 20. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, so it's the uh, it's the difference in the streaming services, uh, which oh. is confusing me. So what, what have you got? If you look at the music streaming services, mm-hmm. and there are many out there, YouTube, Apple, Spotify, Deezer, blah, 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 keep continuing, they all offer a comparative service. So if I want to access a, a popular core song, it's going to be on all the platforms, right? Yep, that's dead easy. So now I just subscribe to the platform of my choice and I get a service. However, if you look at the movie streaming platforms or the TV streaming platforms, they're all so interlinked with their own content creation that now there's 20 different things to subscribe to to watch the TV that you might want. And it's only getting worse. It's diverging further and further and further away. Yeah. And I'm getting I'm getting increasingly confused about how far it goes before eventually somebody does something innovative and maybe brings it all back together. Or do we just sit and live with this divergent set of things that we have to choose to subscribe to and drop off and various things? There's no consolidation at all in the. And you know what? In the days when they used to beam telly into your house and things, providers would consolidate it for you. Obviously, not on the same scale. But I'm just thinking, where does this end up? Because every couple of months, a new streaming platform launches with new content. Content, which is great because there's lots of content being created, but it's like oh, it's a lot of money to subscribe and also keeping up and down and blah all over the place. And basically, I'm just confused. Definitely got a few thoughts on this one. Like, I think the the first thing is it's caused by distribution, isn't it? As well as content creation. So, you know, you've got studios making streaming services that have also got distribution deals in yeah. one way or another. Then you've got the disruptors creating content now that then buy in and out of varying distribution deals. And yeah, you get this like really real patchwork of a, of a landscape. It seems to me that there's the obvious, the obvious thing that's going to happen here is like aggregation services that go across the top of them. And, you know, Apple TV plus and things like that, try to do that a little bit, don't they? Where they, yeah. they try to sort of monitor your usage and then, and then make suggestions like cross platform suggestions. Problem with that though is, you can't pay per episode or pay in like micro payments yet. So, you know, I think the end state really could be that you move away from like a monthly fee, you go down to a more micro, micro transactions, transactions yeah. 
but the, the risk in that, of course, is that's probably going to drop the revenue of those underlying streaming services because you're effectively yeah. paying for stuff you're not consuming at the moment, right? Well, I mean, for the consumer, a microtransaction-based thing, and maybe they, they have to jack the price on the individual transaction, but that would be quite compelling. You can have access to all the streaming services and you pay as you go, like proper pay-as-you-go, mobile phones per minute, per whatever, yeah, bang, ace. And maybe you can buy credit, yeah, which says, oh, no, you can get 15 episodes this month on your, your credit and then you can choose to extend it. But if they don't change the commercial model, I think people are going to get tired of the in yeah. continuing divergence of these platforms. And I don't know where it's go- going to end up, but something, and it's particularly around the distribution point that you raise and the commercial model, I think is the crux of it. I think that there is also another issue without wanting to belabor this one. Actually, could, I'd like, the, you know, on a different show, this could be an episode in its own right because it is a really interesting moment because it's it's a sort of a disrupted industry, you know, kind of example that's happening right in front of us, isn't it? Yeah. The, the the other aspect is not all streaming platforms at the moment are profitable. Correct. You know, I think we had, the, I think there was a thing where Disney started to take content off its streaming service because it was basically trying to lower its execution costs around that streaming service. So I think, yeah, I think in, in, you know, maybe just to bring it to conclusion for today, I obviously we can't conclude it, but my guess is it's going to end with aggregation may or may not end up with micro, micro pricing and micro uh, deals. And that's probably a little way away would be, yeah. would be my guess, probably three or four more I think years. There's there's a few more years of this model to continue before it gets to some sensible. Thing. But the, the bit that I get is just to say is that the music industry never suffered this problem. No. So anyway, there you go. It's true. I, I, I'm tempted to answer that, but I won't because we need to move on. <laughs> we are, we're not going to be here till midnight. Yeah, right. Okay. Joining us today, I am delighted to say, is Ian Niven-Bowling, the CTO at Harbour. Hi, Ian. Good to see you. Do you want to just say a little word about yourself and Harbour itself? Yeah, uh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I'm Ian, CTO at Harbour. have been historically working in data for almost all my career. I've worked with big brands like WPP, Google, BT, all trying to solve their data challenges and that's what kind of led me to Harbour, who I believe is solving in the way that most aligns with my personal beliefs. Ian, let's start with Harbour itself. Tell us about the founding idea to start with. Yeah, uh, so Harbour's original idea came from the, the pain and experience that our founders had when working in large organizations where people were trying to get access to data and it was just a real pain, right? It would take weeks, months, um, in some cases, even years to get access to the right data so that they could drive forward new queries, insight, model development, whatever it was. But right at the heart of it was was really trying to solve that problem where people, data citizens, needed to get access to data quickly, and they just couldn't. And people have been talking about, you know, kind of getting data directly to the user, if you like, versus it being, you know, needing to write SQL queries or whatever the database is that you're that you're using. For I mean, we've been talking about that for like twenty years. So, what differentiates the thinking here from sort of the way it's been implemented up until now? Yeah, no, I, honestly, when I when I started out my career in this. It was definitely one of the hot topics back then. And, yeah, and yeah. you know, even today, it's it's kind of, it's it's a bit of a weird one. It's like today, you know, we're talking a lot about Gen AI and um, AI and the capabilities, but right at the heart of trying to solve some of those problems still always revert back to this problem around data access. And I think, you know, my experience has been that 
in a lot of cases, the solutions have been extremely technical, right? Um, they've been really technical uh, to, to create and grant and revoke access, but also they've been kind of tied into uh, kind of monolithic systems, right? It's like my data is in Oracle, my data is in BigQuery, my data is in SQL Server. And if anyone's worked in big, large organizations, you've got all of those databases plus another 20 that are operating in different silos, in different geographies everywhere, right? It's crimes against architecture again, isn't it? Bad decisions <laughs> of the past preventing the business from doing what they need to do. It's, it is that where you just go... And when you had 20 databases, did you think the 21st one was a good idea? It's like, yeah. <laughs> and it, it's such a funny one as well, right? Because, you know, at the time, someone is really trying to do the best that they can and solve a, a solution. And sometimes different databases do actually have a, a unique benefit. It's funny you should say that, Ian, before you go on, because that's what architects are normally saying, it, Rob? <laughs> I, was, I was just doing the best <laughs> I, I could. I'm just going to do <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just trying to defend the architects in the room. You know, we've got to, we've got to make sure that we don't point too many fingers. Uh, yeah, there is always that thing that says sometimes the constraint is too much and it's a tactical decision and somebody always puts on a roadmap, we'll swap that out in the yeah. future, merge those yeah. two and put that one over there and then everybody forgets about it, goes home, has a glass of wine or a gin and whatever. Yeah. And uh, Monday morning, something different. Something different. There's something new. We've got Gen AI to worry about. Um, but, you know, I think... so. I think what's been really interesting about um, the last few years, and it's it's not been something new, but this idea of federated data access, right? So you think about data fabric as a concept of data mesh, and you look at technologies like Presto, then Comtrino, and all of those that followed. I think they started to create a world where you could just sit on top of a very sometimes chaotic data infrastructure architecture. I like that word, chaotic data infrastructure. It was the word sometimes I thought that <laughs> I, was kind. I, I have a list of uh, phrases and words that I nick from the guests, and that's the next one I'm putting on the list. I like <laughs> that chaotic data free. architecture. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we kind of really embrace that idea of sitting across that federated infrastructure. And then what we do on top of that is we layer on a very consumer-friendly experience, right? So when someone is working with data, it feels like you're just working with a normal business system. It's, it's not like you, you have to worry about the security and the governance and how you're granting and revoking access. It just happens through either a su subscription to a data product or sharing a, a data asset with somebody. And then they're able to work with that data directly. So we have a a kind of Gen AI auto-generating SQL interface where someone can just ask questions about the data. We generate SQL behind the scenes. They get the answer. But then we also allow them to see the SQL, play with it, get to know it. And that's part of what we're also trying to do is we're trying to bridge that gap between someone who is a data consumer, is data curious. Then you've got the data analyst, data scientist who knows SQL, knows Python. But we're trying to be in that middle ground where we help people get access to the data really easily and then just gently nudge them in the direction of learning how to speak the languages of data, which are SQL and Python. Well, I just want to maybe take the two layers you set out there, like the mesh layer and then the interface layer as two separate bits of conversation because I'm, re I'm really interested in fabric and mesh and, and what that does because for years and years and years, the, the perennial issue with data for all of the reasons we've been joking about, but there's some seriousness in the in the center of that joke, which is 
it's a heavy lift, or it has historically been a heavy lift. It's really got in the way. Even when big data came along, trying to make sense of it and trying to do something interesting with it was still a challenge, even with more uh, sophisticated technologies like data lakes and all of those other things that came out around the big data boom about five odd years ago. What's different here? Like, does it solve for the perennial problem of, well, we haven't got a master data management structure in place. We don't really understand our data. Does data mesh and data fabric finally get us past that? So what it gets you to is it gets you to a point, I think, of visibility and connectivity, right? So in a lot of cases, understanding what the data is and the value that is that it has is the hard work, right? I've, I've got this saying that I love to say, like, you, you never get a free lunch, right? You you can't get to a point where there's a solid understanding of your data that you you understand the value of it and you understand how you're going to drive it without doing the hard work, right? But what a data mesh and data fabric allows you to do is it allows you to go, I'm actually now going to work across all of my data silos, start to bring things together, and then I can start to work in generating new value-driving data assets, right? So for me, I, I see it more as a connectivity layer that kind of allows you to, to work across it. And then what you can do is you can start to then create new models, create new uh, definitions that really truly hold some value. Hmm. And then the layer above that then, so what you're presumably talking about is completely natural language querying of the data. So give us an example of a case study, if you've got one, of what the complex underlying structure looked like and then the sorts of queries that you could put through it. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we work with... Um, many data vendors, we work with people in the, the financial services industry. And so, you know, an example that I can talk about is market data, right? Stuff that is happening with, you know, the US equities. And so, you know, it's quite a vast data set to work with, um, continually updating, continually being refreshed and allowing users to be able to ask questions like, okay, well, what was the the average close price for Apple over the last couple of weeks or over the last three hours, or show me the comparison between these two stocks or whatever the case may be. So what it's doing is it's what we have is we have the ability to kind of expose the different um, data sets that are, you know, would be required to facilitate that query. And then within it, we are able to then do the joins, make sense of it, and return the results back to the user so that they're able to to kind of carry out their own analysis or interrogation. And then from a productivity perspective, a lot of the difficulty with data is, as we opened up with, is getting hold of the source data, and then you've got the analysis stage on top, and what you're doing is removing all that heavy lifting, basically. There must be a massive productivity boost by that, so the people who are good at analysing data can spend most of their time doing the high-value job and not having to worry about, how do I get hold of that piece of data type thing. Yeah, 100%. And that's the feedback that we, we've gotten is that it just makes it so much more intuitive and accessible to be able to work with the data. And I think that's what we found over the, that's why we basically pushed into this area is we found that working with our customers is that, you know, within our product, we had, you know, a really seamless way for people to get access to the data. It was very user-friendly. But then what we had is we had some really heavy tools that they would use, right? So Jupyter Notebooks or like Hue Query Explorer or whatever the case may be. And it was they, we kept hearing that 
this is great, but we are really struggling to find the 5% of the users that this is applicable to. Actually, for 95% of the users, they're looking for something that's a lot more intuitive. And this is even when we kind of expose dashboards through tools like Superset. So it was really interesting for us to to kind of go through that process and, and see the results come out the other end. And now what we feel we have is we have a way to really seamlessly kind of bring your data to life. So, you know, give it structure, give it meaning through like a catalog, productize that and put that onto our marketplace. And then for consumers to be able to explore and quickly uh, get access and interrogate that data through the marketplace, we just found is is working well. And do you see a future where this is integrated into like office products and things like that? So obviously Copilot is around at the moment. How does this new world of AI-driven tooling come together, do you think, so it provides a, a non-confusing natural language interface? Not, not like, hey, I've now got my six or seven different natural language tools that I can query, each of which are giving me a mildly different answer. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really great, great question because even if you look at it, like Microsoft Fabric as a solution that is out yeah. um, and you can see how well integrated and aligned that is with the whole Microsoft stack, right? And then you've got everyone that isn't on the Microsoft stack and then you've got people that are on the Microsoft stack who are like, actually, that's too much for us. We want to try and find something different. And there's this boom of all of these tools that are that are doing it. And I think what will happen is we will probably go through a period where there will be lots of these around and eventually they'll get whittled down into tools that are talking to the infrastructure that is considered the, the source of truth for the data. But I think it's going to take a little bit of a while for that to settle down because there's just such an explosion of new models, new capabilities. And I think there will inevitably be a lot of these point solutions just kind of cropping up all over the place, a bit like you have databases cropping up all over the place, right? The next architectural challenge, some might say. Well, Well, speaking of an architectural challenge, there's a a lot of businesses occasionally, I say occasionally in inverted quotes, mostly. (laughs) Sometimes. Sometimes may have put their data into sources like Excel spreadsheets, business developed apps, things like that. Where do you think the challenge lies? Or do you think organizations are getting a, a grip of, do you know how important that data is in the Excel spreadsheet? I can't believe you left it on your hard drive. We should really have that in a, in a system of record or controlled, et cetera. Do you, do you think they're starting to understand that more and more and it's getting easier for them to use more capable products to protect that type of data? Or do you think there's still this scourge of Excel out there that is harboring business data and business you know, process uh, work? Yeah, I I think the latter, to be honest. And the reason why I think the latter is because if you think about what's happening is you've got an interface, Excel must go down in history as the best analytics tool of all time, right? Uh, You know, the the, the widest used. Certainly, I met Chris would say. (laughs) Accounting Chris, yeah, he loves loves it. He once drew drew a picture in Excel and then copied that picture and pasted it into PowerPoint. That's how in (laughs) love he is with Excel. I love that. Uh, So so that's... uh, And so you've kind of got that, right? It is a tool that is ubiquitous that people learn how to use quite quickly. And then... What you've got next is email, which is probably one of the easiest sharing capabilities out there, right? It's just pop it in an email and share. And I think that's that's part of the, that's part of why we are we exist and we're what we're trying to solve is that 
a lot of the technical tools that are out there today aren't solving that really intuitive way to work with data and a really intuitive way to share data for a non-technical user. And and if you get a source file and email it to 20 people, there are now 20 versions of that file and good luck keeping control of it, et cetera. I do think there is a little bit of sharing central sources, co-editing, things like that. It is coming along and corporate culture is changing. You're absolutely right with that. Email and Excel together have created quite, uh, a problem. They've they've solved loads of issues. They've helped us. They've increased productivity. They've done amazing things, and then they've also created a massive <laughs> pile of. Somebody should calculate the carbon footprint of all that. Well, indeed, every. Well, I mean, that's the thing about CO two is data. The impact of data and storing data has a yeah. uh, you know a CO two impact. You send a PowerPoint to ten thousand people. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's an impact, and you do that so many times a day right across the globe, and you got a lot of digital litter sat out there, haven't you? Right on. Digital litter. I love that. <laughs> There's loads coming, of it everywhere. It's coming thick and fast today, right? Coming thick and fast. I'll tell you what, you can have that one in reverse. And okay. I'll your, uh... I was going to say, can I take that one? <laughs> how do you get after cleaning that up then, Ian? So how does, how does this help with kind of moving that ball forward? Because there has been additional productivity suite, easy for me to say, productivity suites come along that have actually had better sharing models. And I think that does help. But it, we're not all there yet, are we? And we still have quite a lot of user behaviors that are still feel comfortable with emailing stuff around. And that not only proliferates digital litter that we've been talking about, but actually there are more serious concerns around it, like security and GPRD and all of those things that would come along with, frankly, being so fast and loose with data. Are we moving to a point, do you think, where the interface style and the consumption and the use of all of this stuff is going to be so profoundly different that we can just kind of step change out of our previous behaviors. Yeah, that's what that's what I think. It is going to require something that is very different in the way that consumers interact with data, right? I think, you know, I think there's been huge strides and incredible strides in, you know, making that possible, but I think there's kind of Maybe it's the last mile, the last couple of miles that still just need to be bridged, right? I think the data catalogs in many ways have helped to make things more discoverable, to to allow you to centralize the understanding of what's out there. But then you're still your consumer is still left to their own devices to figure out how to work with it. And sometimes you have to go directly to the database to work with it. And I think in that world, it just becomes too complicated. And so I think in order to facilitate the type of data culture that I think all organizations aspire to, they've really got to put that data consumer at the heart of the the problem that they're trying to solve, as opposed to what is the technical solution to help solve this problem. And and I think like that's one of the things I've loved about kind of just being in product management for my entire career is that, you know, from a product perspective, when you have that mindset on you're always thinking from the user's experience, right? You're always thinking about what is what is that last experience that's going to help that user achieve their goals. And I think sometimes when you're working in corporate IT projects, that isn't valued as much. And I think that means that the individuals that ultimately end up deciding whether it's a success or not are the people that are least considered. Chuck, what have you been looking at this week? 
So each week I do some research on related ideas and transformation in tech. And this week I thought we should take a look at Gen AI as the starting point for future innovation. So Gen AI is still in the early stages of development and deployment with, of course, much more transformations to come. So research suggests that generative AI has the potential to add trillions of dollars to the global economy on an annual basis. And it should really be seen as a tool to complement the human work, assisting in idea generation, reducing administrative tasks, and like we already mentioned, speeding up the coding transformations. And to make the most of it, businesses need smart leaders who can integrate AI effectively and focus on innovation with generative AI. So a question to all of you. How do you think that businesses can effectively implement AI as a complementary feature to their staff rather than as a replacement? So, I mean, we just, I mean, we just touched on probably one of the biggest issues, which is corporate data is held in locations that uh, are hard to reach. You know, the whole Excel thing, it points to bad culture, bad organization, bad management, bad incentives. So AI, hero tool, yeah, comes in, saves the day. Only if you properly connect all your data sets together and provide it with the right information and the efficacy and the accuracy of that data is there. Otherwise, you're going to get really weird results. So I think, I think for me, uh, although it's romping over the horizon, everybody's getting very excited about it. Let's go back to the basics, please, and make sure you got them right. Because if you build it on sand, guess what? It ain't going to give you the answers that you want. In fact, you just cause all sorts of weird hallucinations and results and errors and things. So I just think perfectly compounds the fact that organizations have to really get their house in order to be able to use this stuff. I think one of the the things as well that I think is, it was really interesting. I saw something come out recently, which was around BCG. BCG saying that all of their staff basically are actively encouraged to start using tools like OpenAI in their day-to-day work, right? And they saw, I think it was a 30 or 40% productivity boost for any of the teams that were doing so. And I think partly what would what also gets in the way is kind of the the moat around the corporation, right? Yeah. And not letting these technologies in for certain use cases, right? So like I know I've I've seen some really amazing results with people just using them for proofreading or generating emails when you, you're a bit annoyed and you want to say something and you just type it in and say, just write me something that's a little bit more friendly than what I've said. And so I think there's also, I totally agree with all your points. And I think also just having a way for these tools to come in in a non-threatening way um, so that people can start to use them, maybe even without their corporate data, just to start to be used to it and start to help improve on really, really micro tasks. I think that there's something important there as well. Yeah. Yeah. It feels to me that there's a, there's a few interesting levels in this uh, that I think we'll see evolve very quickly over the next 12 months or so. Uh, I suspect by the time this year, we're getting through to the, some of the bigger cloud provider conferences as we go through the year this year, we'll start seeing aspects of AI implementation that become more and more macro. So at the moment, exactly to your point, Ian, you can see how the implementation happens in a series of in a series of small point solutions. Like I think we've said before that even just in the production of our show, we use Gen AI and other AI tools actually maybe about five different times just in the in the generation of one episode of the show, which probably cuts our production time down by a number of hours for each episode, which is um, extremely helpful. 
but they're all unconnected. They're all like unconnected little different implementations. And it seems to me that if you scale that up to the scale of your enterprise, well, the confusion we've had in the data landscape is nothing compared to the confusion we're going to have in the artificial intelligence landscape. So, so to me, the big question becomes, what does that macro adoption look like and what impact will that have? Well, if you extrapolate that out, Dave, if we do all those connected points like the podcast example, pretty sure we could replace Marcel by February 2024. <laughs> I was hoping January, but... Um, no. Well, we, 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 we have to do a bit more testing. Uh, let's be fair. fair. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, we're nearly there. We're nearly there. I'm expecting the evolution of of some form of platform in this space. Yeah. I mean, do we? I mean, what, what do you guys think? Because I've been wrestling with this a little bit recently to try and get a perspective on it. Are we talking platform? Are we talking actually? We'll have AI, you know, managing all of the different AI points so, of light. So, the, I mean, it's the again, going back to crimes against architecture, but it was a function of the time. So the epochs of computing mainframe versus uh, client server versus cloud, the data models mirror the architecture and the funding lines that provide them, et cetera. So that's fundamentally what created silo architecture. That's what architects normally yeah, say in governance, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. At the, at the end of it, when they're like, how did we get here? Be like, oh, it was the funding's fault. If, if you were starting from a fresh... You would create. I'm just going to keep going, Dave. Uh, if you started fresh, <laughs> I'm going to ignore that and move on. Uh, you start fresh. You would have a core data model that was coherent, understood correctly. Uh, you know, good taxonomy, value of the data, understand where everything sits, and then you would put your systems on top to process that data. And they could be AI driven or transactional, whatever you need. So there's this point that says your platform view is right, but only when you're starting from a clean sheet. Do you get there easily? Can you imagine the evolutionary journey a lot of traditional organizations have to go on to get to that clean view of data and that clean view? And we've been talking about Harbor and things like that to help you get there, but there's a huge complexity in the transformation to that vision that is core data platform, core processing platform, intelligence integrated into both. And it's it, it's great. It's a great view of the world, but the journey there is, oof, blimey. And the question is, will they ever get there? Yeah, right? no, true. Yeah. Well, that goes back to the whole how companies die. So another company rises, builds the perfect architecture, gets massive competitive advantage using all the things that we've discussed. Other company has a disadvantage or a structural disadvantage in their technology, and then they can't keep up and they get consumed or they disappear. And I think this is going to be, tech is going to be one of the things that does can be a differentiator in does a company survive or does a company die? because of the things we've been discussing. Well, on that cheery note, let's uh, let's bring our conversation today to a conclusion. Thank you, everybody. A, a great conversation. Lots of food for thought in that, I thought. Ian, thank you so much for your time and insights today. Great to be here. Thank you. And we end every episode of this podcast by asking our guests what they're excited about doing next. And that could be, I'm looking forward to a great restaurant I've got booked at the weekend, or I'm looking forward to something interesting in my professional life. So Ian, what are you excited about doing next? So I'd love to to call out something in my professional life, but I am consumed at the moment with a run that I've got coming up, which is the fan dance, which I became aware of as I got more and more hooked into the program SAS Who Dares Wins. And it is part of the selection process for the SAS where they they do it. I think it's a 14-mile hike through Penny Fan and the Brecon Beacons. Mm. And you do it with 40 pounds on your back, and you've got to try and do it in under four hours, 10 minutes. So 
And, and this is something you want to do, did you say? Yeah. I was going to say, it's <laughs> yeah, supposed yeah. to be a fun you really thing like that? that you're looking yeah. forward to. I'm like, <laughs> okay. Uh, do, have you understood the, the point of what you're excited about doing this? <laughs> I, yes, I know my wife. My wife looks at me with the same quizzical look. But yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Well, good luck with that. That's going to be, you know, but I'm sure rewarding after the event when you think I just did that. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah, good luck. Amazing. Well, do let us know what your time was and, and the best of luck. I hope you make it. Thank you. Thank you. I hope so too. So a huge thanks to our guest this week, Ian. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks also to our sound and editing wizards, Ben and Louis, our replaceable producer, Marcel, and of course, to all of our listeners. We're on LinkedIn and X, Dave Chapman, Rob Kernan, and Xiao Kizal. Feel free to follow or connect with us and please get in touch if you have any comments or ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you in another reality next week.